Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nikolic, and my guest today is Dr. Gwen Adshead, who is a visiting Gresham Professor of Psychiatry and currently Consultant Forensic Psychiatrist at Ravenwood House. Prior to this post, she worked at Broadmoor Hospital from 1996, first as a consultant forensic psychiatrist, and then as a consultant in forensic psychotherapy. In her role as both a forensic psychiatrist and psychotherapist, Professor Adshead has tried to understand the psychological mechanisms that give rise to violence and life-threatening behavior towards others. She has worked as a member of a therapeutic team whose role is to rehabilitate and offer secure psychiatric care to some of the most vilified and socially rejected members of society. Today, we talk about her work and understanding of the mechanisms that underpin violence and life-threatening behavior, and I'm very proud to have her on this show today as she has a very broad knowledge of what are the factors that play into violence, which I thought was refreshing and very nuanced. So please enjoy this episode as I certainly found it to be enlightening and very useful to consider how violence can be viewed in a different way. Enjoy. Gwen, a big thank you for coming on to the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Nesh. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm excited to talk to you today about the the, the wealth of knowledge that you have in 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 this space around you know the mechanisms that give rise to violence and life threatening behaviour towards others. I know that this is something that you have spent uh, uh, you know somewhat of a, an entire lifetime on, um, and it's really interesting to talk to someone you know with your level of expertise, you know, particularly because it's. I think not an area certainly that I know very much about, and I think our listeners also you know, get a lot out of this. So, yeah, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's 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 it is a field that people don't know much about, um, but I I've certainly found that it's an area that most people have an interest in. And one of the things that I like about coming to do interviews like this is that I. I, I'm really interested in this topic and I'm, I'm com- pretty confident that other people are also interested in it too. So it's nice to be able to share uh, with, with interested people. Yeah, fantastic. And how did you get into this space? What, what, what brought you to looking at this topic? Well, I trained in psychiatry, um, so uh, medical training first and then um, in psychiatry. And I guess I was actually interested in law. 
I was quite interested in ethics and law applied to psychiatry because, of course, psychiatrists have legal powers over patients, um, which is, you know, kind of awesome, really, you know, that psychiatrists get to have those kind of powers. So I got quite interested in what happens in the law between, um, in the law that organizes um, psychiatrists and what psychiatrists can do in this interspace, the interface between law and psychiatry. And as I got interested in that, I began to get interested in the criminal law and about how psychiatrists give expert, not only give expert testimony in criminal cases, but also how psychiatrists help courts think about what mental states could make you responsible for your actions or not responsible for your actions. So it was really an interest in law and ethics that first got me into uh, forensic psychiatry, which is, and that's a little bit different across the world, but I think uh, in England, and I think certainly, I think in Australia and New Zealand also, uh, forensic psychiatrists don't just give expert testimony in the courts. They also look after people whose mental health problems have caused them to act violently to others. Um, so uh, most of my working life, I've spent looking after people who've been mentally ill and where that's led to violence, but I've also given expert testimony in different kinds of court. Yeah, that certainly is true in, in, in Australia as well, where forensic psychiatrists uh, do, do look after patients as well. I know that we do have psychiatric orders in, in, in place, and it is an interesting space. And maybe I could ask you to talk a little bit more about that because it is a space that has ethics entwined in it because it immediately poses the question of you know, someone having control over another person in, in you know, very specific circumstances. So you know, maybe you can talk a little bit through through that if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. It it's, it's really is very important, um, I think, because it is a massive intrusion in a way to people's civil liberties to to for a professional to be given the power to determine whether someone should be detained against their will. Um, and I'm not familiar with all the state legislature in Australia, but I'm fairly confident that there's there's legislation that allows for involuntary treatment as well, um, which isn't the case in the states. In the states, you can be detained, but you can't always be involuntarily medicated. But uh, certainly in, in, in the UK, we have law that allow us not only to detain people against their will, but also to medicate them uh, against their will. And, and the justification for these things is, is exactly as you say, it's an ethical justification. The justification is, yes, we're going to take away somebody's liberty, but we're going to do that in order to improve their mental health and reduce their risk to self or other people. So those are the two main ethical justifications for doing something which is really pretty you know pretty intrusive into civil liberties and what's interesting is that across the world most countries that have kind of organized social legislation do have some form of a legislature around this there's few countries that don't have some way of acting where you think someone's mental state has robbed them of the capacity to make any decisions for themselves at all um, so the, the so in a way that the ethical tension is about what do we do with someone who can't seem to take decisions for themselves at all? And then the second one is what do we do when that state of mind means that they're a danger to themselves or other people? 
So that's mm. where that kind of law comes in. And that's in the civil capacity. But in the criminal capacity, the kind of next step on from that, if you like, is, well, okay, here's somebody who was um, who did a terrible thing, but they were in a disturbed mental state at the time. How can we, can we find out, can we determine whether that mental state did that mean that they didn't really intend to do the terrible thing they did or rather is the horrible thing that they did somehow related to the disturbance of them of their mind and that's a very profound question also uh, to answer but again even going back to roman times there's a understanding that a very few people and it really is only a minority but a very few people who are severely mentally ill will pose a risk of danger to others. And it's what you, what should we do? What should a humane society do about such people? That's really what we're talking about ethically. There is a, a stigma out there, and I, I imagine it comes from a lack of understanding that people who are psychologically unwell, that, you know, from a point of view or a layperson where you can observe them for example they might be talking out aloud talking to themselves talking to people that we can't see uh yeah obviously the from a hallucinatory point of view we tend to fear that we tend to feel that they are dangerous uh, has that been your experience as well very much so. Oh, very much so. I mean, not only is it a very ancient fear that you find in most cultures, but I myself remember as a teenager, um, I was volunteering in a soup kitchen, um, and uh, um, and I remember some there was somebody, help, a couple of people helping out in the kitchen, and you know somebody kind of whispered to me that you know oh, that guy there, he's been in a mental hospital, you know he had schizophrenia, you know. And I remember being frightened, you know, that was, I was, you know, completely stigmatizing, you know, because actually if I'd known then what I know now, I knew there wasn't anything to be frightened of. But at, I but I do remember that stigma and I do remember that kind of assumption. So I think that, I think the stigma is really powerful. And so when you do get the odd, you know, patients who have done something horrible when they're mentally unwell, they've got a kind of double stigma. So they've got the stigma of being mentally unwell and they've got the stigma of being very frightening and often having done something terrible, which they then later regret. Is there any data that that suggests there to be something there where, uh, you know, there's an increase in, you know, aggression or violence or, you know, uh, violent acts that come from people who are you know acutely unwell uh, versus the general population because um, you know we know that our our prisons are full of people who you know are in the general population who are you know of reasonable mind um, yet they've been violent and aggressive and and you know uh, you know done acts that that are you know illegal this is a really complicated question, so I hope you don't mind if I no, please, you know, speak please. for a speak at a little length um, in in, our, in answering because it's such an important question. And the the really in, the re, perhaps the, the really good news is that around the 1980s, uh, people started to get really interested in this as a research question. 
So, and in the 1990s, the MacArthur Foundation in the States started up uh, a big research project to look at violence rates um, amongst people who uh, had uh, a mental illness diagnosis. And at the same time, there began to be some real, some good quality research looking at the mental health of prisoners to try and tease out um, what link there is between mental disorder and violence. And, and the good news is, is really that um, m most people who have a mental disorder of any kind will never be violent to anyone else. And the risk, if, uh, and what risk there is, is risk to themselves of suicide. That's, that's the biggest the take home message. However, there are a small number of individuals where the mental where mental illness seems to increase their risk of violence. And that's especially for those folk who are misusing substances, especially for those folk who've kind of gotten into the habit of breaking the law before, maybe not violently, but in terms of just breaking the criminal law, but also those folk who are in paranoid states of mind. So if you think about it, and if you think about it for a minute, it kind of makes sense that you, if you were already in a very frightened state of mind because you were paranoid, and you've been taking drugs that distort your reality, and you've kind of had a history of breaking rules before, that combination of those things might be much more likely to push you over the edge to do something violent. So what, um, what I learned from a wonderful colleague of mine um, uh, at Broadmoor Hospital called Peter Aylwood is that you could think about the risk factors for violence like a bicycle lock. And you could, you've got to have four or five numbers all lined up before the lock opens and the violence erupts. And those first couple of numbers are so general as to be very unhelpful. So being young and male <laughs> is a big risk factor <laughs> for violence. So that's not very helpful when it comes to prediction so or assessment. Um, but, um, but then if you start to look at substance misuse, that's a big risk factor for violence. Paranoid mental state, big risk factor for violence. There's increasing interest in exposure to childhood trauma as a risk factor for violence. But often the last number in the lock is something that's very particular to the perpetrator. It's something, it's a kind of, so the violence becomes a communication from them to the victim, a dreadful communication, one that the victim doesn't understand, nobody understands sometimes. But if we think about that, about violence as the result of a number of factors all being in place in the right time, and then one last number comes up that's rather peculiar to the perpetrator, that's a better way of thinking about it. And, and there's some very good data that's come out of research in Australia, in particular, some fantastic colleagues of mine in Sydney who've done some amazing research showing that most people with, mentally, with mental illness will never be violent. But where there is violence, it's often in people who've got an undetected mental illness um, and, and that it's just not been detected yet. So it's not the people who we already know are struggling. It's people who've got a very, you know, a very serious mental illness, often with very intense paranoid beliefs, um, who then can unhappily be, you know, become violent. 
I like that last aspect, uh, which I think poses a question of function. That the you know, violence can be a form of of communication to be understood, uh, because it does raise the the context around if someone were to be, for example, in a paranoid state of mind, the communication there in this theoretical um, in a, uh, uh, um, example might be to protect oneself or to 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 escape to get away by the use of violence and and that potentially feeds into an earlier question that you raised which was around intent trying to understand someone's intent and and uh, I, I like how that almost brings it around circular to to understand or at least to think about violence as a form of communication that that someone is trying to to say something, communicate something in in the, the best form that they have available at their time, or at least it can be explained potentially by understanding that. I think so. I I I I certainly wish that I'd understood that much earlier on. And it really fits that approach actually really fits with the data too that we have. So for example, um, the UN Office for Drug Control published a report about 10 years ago about different kinds of homicide across the world. And one of the things, that, of, of the many things that are interesting in that report, one is that violence rates are very different across the world. So that tells us straight away that, that homicide is not one thing. Um, homicide has different meanings and different significance and occurs in different ways and different rates across the world. But the second thing was that they identified three different kinds of homicide. They identified kind of crime-based homicide, which is basically to do with the weaponized drugs trade. So, so, uh, so that's Mexico, Caracas, Belize, other bits of Venezuela, um, hugely high rates of homicide, which are all to do with the drugs trade. Um, and then there's terrorist violence in which the communication is very clear. The communica it's the communication of a political message and deaths are kind of collateral damage. So the deaths are not necessarily in Tended as such, but they're anticipated as part of delivering the message. And then in the last kind of homicide is relational homicide, where the communication is very personal to the victim. And often the message to the victim is, you know, you can't leave me. You know, you've hurt me. I'm terrified of the fact that you might hurt me. Um, I'm terrified of the way that you impact on me. So that's the, that's the message. And you're making me think of a guy I worked with many years ago who had killed his uh, partner. Uh, he, was, uh, he was very paranoid uh, and distressed at the time, but nevertheless, you know, he, uh, he, was, he was very distressed. And he said, I wanted to kill her. I didn't want her to die. And yeah, I mean, you know, that's a kind of very odd communication, but in a way it's very oddness. Is a, is a reminder to us that, that a lot of homicide is very odd. Homicides are actually a very unusual way to communicate with other human beings. And in peacetime and between disasters and in most 
organized social democracies like Australia or Europe and, and even even in America, um, you know, homicide, um, you know, is quite an unusual way for people to break the criminal law. Um, and it's certainly an unusual way for people to communicate with others, um, thankfully, um, because, of course, it's a communication that stops all communication. Um, and that's one of the things that's most difficult for people who've killed. I mean, it's, of course, it's dreadful for people who are dead and their families, but for the people who killed, particularly when they kill family members, they, they, they stop all possible conversation to try and make it better. Um, and it is a burden for them as it is for others. Are you able to talk us through a little bit about the, 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 the mechanisms at play in those three different categories uh, uh, to try and put a bit of flesh around those that, that, those sure. bones I mean definitely there, there's very different there's very substantial differences between you know crime-based homicide that's sort of gang related um, yeah you know, world hugely and relational it's kind of yeah, it's kind of weaponized, weaponized capitalism <laughs> in a way. I mean, where you're simply taking out the competition, but you take them out with, you know, with by, by killing them. Um, and it was a fascinating article in a, that I read recently in a journal. I oh know it was a newspaper article. I think about you know there are there are young men in in Caracas making a living by carrying out assassinations, and they only get a few thousand dollars per hit, but that's a way to make a living. Um, but there you're literally, you know, it's 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 corporate competition, but mm. you use weapons to get rid of the competition. So so they're the motivations. And this goes back to really the point you were making earlier. So you were you were saying quite rightly that some people in paranoid states of mind may be acting violently in a reactive kind of way. Whereas in crime-related violence, what we're talking about is proactive or instrumental violence. So there the violence is really part of getting the job done, whatever the job is. So let's say you want to burgle a house, although violent burglary is quite unusual because um, that's a high cost for a burglar. But, but, but if we go back to the, if we go back to, um, the drugs-based crime and gang-based drugs crime uh, where you take out the competition, you're killing somebody really to further your business interests and you kill off somebody who might be threatening your business interests. Um, and that's, it's kind of, so it's kind of instrumental violence um, it doesn't necessarily have anything very personal in it. And terrorist-related po political terrorism is the same. Um, no doubt there may be deep emotions, perhaps, that go with some of those terrorist beliefs. Hard to know, I think. Um, often such men and women don't live to tell the tale. But um, they may have deep emotions around their beliefs. But again, their violence is kind of instrumental. The killing is to get the message across, to make governments or other rival political parties take them seriously. But in relational violence, of course, I think, as you say, the message is very different. And the mechanism there is, is, is something I think that is highly individual. And that is about not being able to put your feelings into words. So if you can't express your, if you can't translate your emotions into feelings that you, you can then articulate in words, then the emotions stay at the level of the body and are intolerable. They become increasingly intolerable and physical action becomes the only way to kind of express how you're feeling. 
And funnily enough, uh, Shakespeare actually has a nice quote for this. In Julius Caesar, he has, you know, um, Brutus kills his best friend, um, or certainly a good friend, Julius Caesar, who he's very angry with and jealous of. And he's, and Shakespeare has him saying, speak hands for me. So his hands are speaking that violent message. So even back in the 16th century, there was an understanding that you might act out your most violent and painful and difficult emotions if you can't put them into words. Does that make sense? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. How much uh, of, of this mechanism comes from an impulsive, you know, fear-based control state versus it being a bit more methodical and, 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 and planned? You know, my nature that I'm kind of grappling as you're speaking, my mind uh, sees both sides at play but a you know maybe more of an impulsive leaning um in many of these acts of crime but uh, you know my other side kind of says yeah but you know some of these hits are very you know and, and and you know from a terrorist perspective uh or you know crime base some of it might need to be quite considered and thought out and planned about how to take out your competition or, you know, the type of messaging and, and why you might kill in a particular way or in a particular region or how many or why or, um, you know, in, 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 in reference to, you know, policies that you're not happy with. Uh, so is there any data or, or research around you know, how impulsivity plays out versus, you know, a, a deliberate planned act? Yes, there's there's lots of research and thinking about this for exactly the reasons that you that you say, and I kind of think it's it's kind of, it may be helpful when we're thinking about this to think about um, about violence. Well, certainly as a complex phenomenon for a start, not as a simple thing. And I think that's mm. one of the things that handicaps us, handicaps many of us when we're picking up our newspapers or on social media. We kind of read about violence, but. But the way that violence is depicted is is not is not sufficiently complex and, and nuanced because I think we should think about violence as operating in many dimensions. So we've already talked about whether it's proactive or reactive. We've talked about whether it's relational or not relational, whether it's related to a very particular organized motive or whether it can be a kind of motive less. Um, the commonest kind of violence that most people find in in most countries that keep that kind of data is uh, is drunken fights between young men mm. so certainly in england and wales the commonest kind of violent assault is carried out by drunken young men um and um and there the violence is not remotely planned um but is often indeed impulsive but there the impulsivity may well be fueled by um our two most popular drugs alcohol and cocaine um, so these are both drugs that are disinhibiting and uh, at least in the short term and can give people a sort of sense of power um and sort of I don't know, you know, that old idea of Dutch courage. So people can feel stimulated, um, but of course are, are, are poor reality testers in those states of mind. Um, amphetamines too, of course, um, very powerful drugs uh, for stimulation, um, and but also for inducing paranoia. 
course, if you use amphetamines chronically, you get paranoid. So that's a really bad combo. So you've got someone who's drunk, taking cocaine and taking amphetamines. You've got somebody who's just you know, seriously risky to be around, even though they haven't planned it at all. You say the wrong thing to them and boom, that might be the last number in the box, for, in, in, the, in the lock for them. But there are other kinds of impulsivity and that I, I think too, um, and I'm thinking here about the literature on shame um, and about shame-based violence and that, um, and that people, and again, this is particularly the case for men, I think for young men, um, particularly those who may be deprived in other ways, who've had difficult childhoods and um, people, men, young men who lack father figures, um, a lot of interest in the absence of positive masculine role models, where to be shamed is to, or dishonored in some way, to lose your immediate status in the eyes of others is to generate a kind of overwhelming sense of vulnerability and shame that can drive a violent act in order to right the sense of strength. So the violence comes quite swiftly without much thought in order to make the perpetrator feel strong and safe again, um, if that makes sense. It's a little bit different from paranoia where you're generally feeling a sense of dread and feeling very unsafe and you know, there's nowhere good to go and everybody's out to get you and people hate you. Whereas shame is much more about being dishonored in the eyes of others. And the and um, Professor Jim Gilligan um, in the States has written some very interesting work about how for some men, impulsive acts of serious violence are a response to feeling ashamed and, and, and they kind of write themselves mm. internally by carrying out that act. Just picking up on that, my, my mind's moved from sort of an, an immediate shame and you know, a defence against that might be violence. Is there any link where someone might have a, a, a chronic sense of shame where the violence becomes inwardly um, uh targeted and there's self-violence you know the 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 sort of self-harm or you know suicidality side of things uh absolutely it, it, i i think i think that and this is what this is what's so interesting about the data on adverse childhood experiences that's been growing over the last 20 years and i think we we're all very grateful to the Feliti group for getting this research going because those of us who um, who are interested, those of us who come from a kind of psychodynamic background have always, you know, it's, it's most of us have wondered about the role of early childhood experience on later, on the way you see the world and personalities and so forth, personality development. But what uh, Felitti's group and all the subsequent studies on adverse childhood experience since have done is to provide us with some really good quality data that shows that the more exposure to childhood adversity you have and also the absence of protective factors, the more likely you are perhaps to develop a sense of self, Nash. I wonder if that sense of self as well as a sense of uh, self-esteem, a sense of way of seeing yourself, um, your representation of yourself, if you like, or even the story of yourself that then is full of chronic shame and pain, psychological pain. I sometimes think we don't take the experience of pain 
we don't think about psychological pain the way we think about physical pain. Mm. Um, but of course, if you are exposed to physical abuse and neglect, and or just and, and just verbal hostility from parents, you can grow up with a, a absolutely chronic sense of being unvalued, unloved, as though you don't matter or you don't exist. And then you wonder how much the violence comes to fill in the gap where self should be, that here at last I have some kind of identity. And not only do I have an identity, but it is one that it's recognized from others, which is being uh, being a violent person. Mm. That's the kind of trope, a kind of story, particularly for young men, that that's kind of recognizable that you can fit into. And there might even be places where that would be valued. I, I you know, for a while, I used to work in a trauma clinic and we saw quite a few young men um, in uh, military, after military trauma. And I was very struck by the fact that these many of these young men had come from quite deprived backgrounds, not dissimilar to my prison men. Um, but they had decided to funnel their anger <laughs> Um, and their sense of a lack of belonging into something functional, mm. which was the military. And so long as they got good care in the military and good support and good teaching, they could actually channel all that hostility and potential for violence into something useful. It almost feels like there is that link where in the context of childhood, you know, whether it's neglect, abuse, trauma that to cope in that environment you need to find you know a means of being self-reliant and you know and, and maintaining mm. control is one mm. of those things and you know that mm. that means not necessarily listening to to adults but determining your own behaviors and and that's maybe where that link of people who've had a history of you know, unlawful acts might be more uh, prone to violence is that that has been a mechanism early in life to keep them safe but they've taken yes. that into adulthood uh, and so you know it's Very it ends up being so. a characteristic or a feature that that the person identifies with it becomes you know somewhat of their personality and uh, you know it's, it sounds like we've both certainly met those who have been in the you know uh, jail you know incarceration system who they proudly identify with with um with those traits and that's probably what keeps them safe in that in their environment which is going to be yeah. around other people who are also violent and yeah. other people who are also you know un unlawful somewhere they can belong i mean mm. what's what's so interesting about the antisocial uh, state of mind and the antisocial space is that there is a tension between being um, being so antisocial that not even the other antisocial people will have you um, <laughs> versus uh, and having enough pro-social behavior to be part of the antisocial outgroup and to belong to that. Um, and of course, this is the substance of many uh, great stories about organized crime, um, where you have to be pro-social enough to keep the rules of the organized crime group that you belong to. Um, and I mean, what you said there, Nish, is so important. Uh, and it reminds me of the, the research that there has been about 
um, insecure attachment, uh, uh, and especially about avoidant kind of attachment, where indeed there's an emphasis on strength and normality, but especially not being vulnerable and kind of denigrating being vulnerable. So if you've grown up unable to feel safe when you were vulnerable, unable to reach out for care when you were feeling vulnerable, then you could actually generate a story for yourself in which, well, I'm never going to feel vulnerable. That's just not going to happen. I'm not going to do vulnerability ever. Um, And actually, I'm going to denigrate my own vulnerability and other people's. Um, And anytime I do feel vulnerable, I'm going to take action swiftly to make sure that that situation ends in whatever way is necessary. Um, and and I think what's fascinating for me about that is is there are two related things here that we might be interested to talk about. I mean, one is there there is a, a paper from 2014, which is a kind of meta-analysis, which showed by a person called Ogilvy, um, which showed that uh, insecure attachment is a risk factor for violence. Uh, it's only one of many, going back to our bicycle lock analogy, it's only one, it's not you know, uh, it's not a determinant of violence, but insecure attachment is a risk factor combined with other ones. But the other thing is coming back to this thing about masculinity, because, you know, there's nowhere in the world where perpetrators of violence are not overwhelmingly male. Nowhere in the world. There are, there are always some female perpetrators, always, always, and they're not very, they're not, they're very like the men in many ways. But they're far fewer in number. And that is, of course, an extremely interesting question to, to which which is needs a Nobel Prize winning answer. Um, and you won't be hearing that from me today, I promise you. But one of the things that must be in the mix is about the kinds of masculinity that are on offer to young men, particularly abused and neglected and lonely young men. And if they, if what's on offer is a kind of masculinity which is strong, denigrating of vulnerability, shameless in its cruelty, then that might feel kind of empowering, especially if there are other people doing the same thing. So you've got a group to belong to. And I, I wonder whether there's a kind of terrible appeal um, about, for example, some kinds of gangs for some of our more lonely, uh, some of our more lonely, insecure young men. Um, and of course, if, you're, if your financial prospects are not great, then, then um, organized crime might seem very attractive or might seem the only way. It is quite sad because you do see in that space uh, how power is you know, abused by you know, one member of a gang against other members of the gang where they're quite happy to put you know, the younger members in the firing line to do their dirty work uh, mm. while you know they protect themselves. And I, I know that in my clinical work, uh, you know, some uh, uh, clients that I've worked with who are uh, in those types of environments, some of them are very clever. Yes, they're viral, mm-hmm. violent, and um, they're very cunning. They, mm-hmm. they do have quite a uh, a great grasp of social 
nuances uh, mm. to to ensure that they are, you know, not like you know antisocial where the other antisocials will reject them, but but rather they have status and they're they're very, they're very deliberate and thought through, and so you know they're quite clever in that means. Uh, uh, although yes. you know they they still obviously their focus is on on um, you know, criminal acts and, and and the like, but it's not like they're they're impulsive. Um, no, no, uh, I think that's right. Use some younger, impulsive, you know, uh, members to 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 you know do some of their dirty work. Absolutely, um, and um, and I'm afraid that happens, particularly in 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 drug related crime, but mm. also in in terrorism. I mean, we've had some sad examples here in the UK of disturbed young men who've been radicalised online and sent off to do something ghastly with a, an explosive device you know they don't really they they're not the masterminds you know they they they've talked about often as a kind of lone wolf but not they're often not really they've been they've been encouraged to go and do that and um and they're often very they're often extremely vulnerable once they once they've been caught and exposed they're often extremely vulnerable uh people um and i remember working with a man um who got who was picked up um at a uh, at an airport somewhere in southeast asia carrying you know uh, two large cases of amphetamines and he was grossly psychotic at the time he was completely psychotic um but you know the person who had given him the suitcases um you know had sent him off saying you know you'll you know, you'll be a hero you're doing a, you're doing a kind of heroic thing for us you know um you know, you're very brave and you know this, this is great you know and uh, so off he went and he got caught and was almost certainly a kind of diversionary tactic so so the the other you know five other suitcases got through while this guy didn't because he was so obviously psychotic mm. um so I think that using of other of other people, I think, you know, what this brings us back to is that when we think about violence, we do need to always kind of analyze it carefully in terms of was this impulsive, was this planned, does this involve relationships with other people, does this involve the use of other people, what is the meaning of this violence? Um, and if we start to parse it uh, a bit like that, that you know, that may help us to try and understand what kind of communication this is. But you know, there are some kinds of violence that are very hard to understand. Some of these kind of spree killings of families, for example, I think are very hard to understand. And we had a man go down for whole life uh, tariff just the other day. That means he'll he'll die in prison. Um, and he he had killed his partner and her two children and a small child who was staying overnight with the children not really clear that he had any motive at all beyond well he was intoxicated and on high on cocaine but it wasn't clear that he had any motive that would make sense to anybody and that's mm. really one of the things that i guess i still find you know painful as a therapist working with violence is sometimes you come across uh, uh, a story of violence which makes no sense. It makes no sense to the perpetrator. It makes no sense to you, the therapist, and you know it makes no sense to all the people who've been hurt by this. And sometimes we just, you know, sometimes 
just have to sit there and and lament mm. for these kind of human tragedies that happen. Uh, thankfully, they they're do, not very common. Yeah, they do often hit the headlines, and you know, mm. like in every country, you know, Australia's recently experienced the uh, the um, you know, homicide of of some police officers oh uh, yes you know, oh that was that was a dreadful story oh yeah. extraordinary story you know neighbor that was also killed in 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 i haven't sort of looked at the story very much because you know i don't necessarily trust the no. reporting um and and how it can be exaggerated yeah. and so on but i do believe there was you know a level of you know, there were certainly strange thoughts that were going on and some paranoia and, 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 yes. and the like. I'm not sure yes. if there was drugs involved. Um, and but, complicated uh, relationships. Oh, very, very. Very complicated relationships between the men, yeah. the, the two men and the, and the woman. They were brothers, weren't they? And, and their right. poor father was interviewed, kind of baffled as to what had happened with his sons. And as the mother of sons myself, I... I can only I only imagine the kind of pain that comes, you know, uh, uh, you know, with these kind of events. And I often think that we we rightly are hugely respectful and compassionate for the families of people who've been killed, but the families of perpetrators mm. also are people who can have a terrible time, um, and and are not to blame. Um, and are sometimes as astounded by the actions of their family members as anybody else's, um, and that can be uh, that is truly terrible. Yeah. And, and 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 often a lot of parental shame that comes, even though it's not their behaviour, but they feel that it's somehow related to them because it is their offspring, and and it creates yes. lots of complications, you know, psychologically for. You know, for loved ones, for family members, uh, you know, and, and as you say, you know, we don't want to necessarily uh, forget the perpetrator's family in, in, in this because they are also as, as equally horrified by the behaviour of their loved ones as, as the victim's families are. Um, you know, and of course, they can be one and the same. Yes. You see, if you know, in, in the hospital where I work, we have a steady trickle of people who've killed a, a parent. Um, oh when they were mentally unwell, and you know they still have a surviving parent and surviving mm. siblings, and 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 those are and those are hugely complex, and 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 it's it. I must say, I, I mean, it has, it is a terrible privilege, but it has been a privilege to 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 walk along with people in their lives after a homicide like that and to look at their relationships, help them with their relationships with their family members and understand the terrible choices that family members make. Um, and in, in terms of trying to decide whether they can have a relationship with their, with their perpetrator relative, you know, mm. and, and you see, you see human beings really struggling to know, know the right thing to do. Um, you know, with mothers with homicidal sons, and um, you know, these are these are incredibly sad stories. And I, I sometimes think that you know that in order, you know, to, when you, if you come into this work, people are, I don't know whether you ever had this experience, but of working with offenders, but people often say to me, "Well, aren't you scared in your work?" And 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 I say, "No, no, no, I'm sad." It's, it's, you know, I see the tragedies of the human condition 
here, the most tragic stories. Um, and so it's one, you know, it's the, the maximum security hospital where I work is a sad place. Um, mm. And uh, a lot of a lot of sadness for things that you can't change back. You can't change into something good. Um, but there's, you know, but it, it it is also a place where we try and and maintain hope as much as best we can. So that's also worth striving for. Absolutely, and I think I think you know understanding the one side, uh, yeah, you know, gives gives leverage to you know being potentially. Uh, uh, you know, furthering from from just understanding to be compassionate and and mm. and caring to you know all parties that that mm. end up being involved, whether it's the, the the victims that obviously we we um can easily uh, associate with, you know, and and maybe even to the other side of of those that are affected because they are the perpetrators or the families of perpetrators. Mm. But Gwen, I wanted to to. Uh, follow up with with some questions around uh, knowing the research in terms of what some of the mechanisms are for violence. Uh, I'm looking at a question around the you know the the I suppose the more severe population that has repetitive or even if I would say you know multi sort of generational violence mm. that, that that comes out of whether it's particular suburbs or communities is there any research that talks about what are some of the for lack of a better word antidotes or, or, or mechanisms for reducing violence for that population which is you know obviously at the sort of uh you know uh, a prickly end the the, the harder mm. the harder and to tackle is is there anything that that um you're aware of that you know might be exemplar programs that have shown themselves to to really you know move the move the needle a little bit yeah well um i think i mean your question is such a good one because it's a reminder to all of us that it can be helpful to think of violence as a kind of ecological problem with individual sort of psyche at, or and even genetics possibly at the center of concentric circles but also then thinking about a circle of the family and the social realm and the circle of the local culture um, and sociological structures and beliefs including things to do with you know with rituals but also to do with um, social socioeconomics and psychogeography and those kind of things and then a, 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 a further circle which is about cultures generally and attitudes towards vulnerability, say. So, and I think using a kind of approach that looks at both attention to individuals and to uh, social welfare and communities has proved very helpful. For example, in Glasgow, they reduced knife crimes uh, greatly um, by working with communities where knife crime was known to be particularly high. And they took that advice from working uh, with similar work that had been done in Chicago based on sociological studies of the meaning of violence. And what they also did was to try and change relationships between the police and communities so that there was less of us and them 
and much more of trying to bring the parts of the community that was absolutely desperate to reduce violence um, to try and kind of encircle the, the smaller numbers of people who were keeping violence going. And there you were trying to understand the meaning of the violence, trying to do something about helping young people um, move away from substance misuse um, and trying to help young people to move away from group activities that focus on, on hurting people or breaking the law to groups that foster some other kind of activities. So sports is the obvious one, but also creativity, uh, you know, arts, occupations, some kind of useful occupation where you could feel valuable. So what you need, what, what seems to work best is a kind of mixture of individual and community initiatives working, working together, being respectful of in both individual choices and responsibility, um, but also respectful of the fact that uh, that cultures um, and social beliefs and structures can have a huge impact on on violence. So I think those kind of figure ground um, approaches are helpful. The other, I mean, two other things that are maybe helpful to think about here too. One is some some places, uh, again, Chicago uh, for one, have and the WHO have also suggested this that we should think about violence as a public health problem. Stop thinking of it simply in terms mm. of of law and order and you know clamping down hard on those who break the law, but instead think of it as a public health phenomenon which involves a number of different factors. Um, and um, and by focusing on those different factors, we might be able to do more about reducing violence. Um, but pretty much anywhere you go, you'll find that you know, doing something about substance misuse um, is is pretty important. And um, and doing something about um, about young men, helping young men get because sort of desist from violence because the the data on young men suggests that a, a significant proportion of young men in their late teens will act violently but the majority of them will desist mm. and leaving only a minority to persist so now what we want to do is understand what's going on for the desisters as well as what's going on for the persisters. So what makes those desisters give it up? And often it's about finding another group to join and another way to be, another way to channel um, and look after that sense of shame or look after that sense of loneliness is perhaps another way to connect. Um, and then finally, and this is kind of the ultra move, is um, better maternal mental health care, parental mental health care because um, becoming a parent is a tough gig. Um, and we know that um, of, the, of the 10 or 12 adverse childhood experiences that we know are risky for kids' mental health, um, at least five of them are to do with parents. They're to do with parental mental health, they're to do with parental incarceration, parental intimate, part, intimate violence, parental drug misuse, <laughs> Um, those kind of things, um, mm. uh, and, parent and parental breakup and separation. So you've got supporting parents is um, is and maternal mental health is 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 something in particular um, that I feel very 
passionate about, partly because I work in the family courts where I see children removed from their mothers because those mothers just can't look after them. Mm. But those children who are are often removed because they're experiencing physical abuse and neglect, I know that those are children who've just acquired a couple of risk factors for poor poor mental health and possible violence later on. So I want I would like to work with those women much earlier on before we've got to the point of child protection services being involved. If we could pick them up at booking into the antenatal clinic, maybe these are mums that we could help with looking after those children so she doesn't find herself in the family court. Um, and I, I think these are the kinds of, again, social kinds of interventions yes they are focused on individuals but actually they're social interventions um mm. that could also make a huge di- that can also make a huge difference to the next generation so much of this resonates with the uh and i'm not completely familiar with but certainly on on a um base level with how portugal addressed the the, mm. the, the the drug problems that they didn't yes. look at drugs as being you know a uh, problem to be dealt with in the legal system and persecuted but rather looked at individual and community initiatives you know creating opportunities for individuals to engage based on you know what their particular preferences are but also doing it from a community perspective and and uh, you know reshaping what the culture of of how we support these people and that they're not being persecuted and, and yes. you know, shunned, but rather yes. they're integrated into uh, the, the community. And I love what you're talking about in terms of that preventative space, in terms of, you know, better parental mental health care, um, you know, because that's the building blocks of, you know, where we learn um, and where these things are modelled or, you know, in, in both directions. Um, yes. So the, the, this whole concept of a, of, of Violence being a public health problem is just so elegant and 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 beautiful, and I think that is really a, a you know a positive light to this conversation about how we can view violence in the future and 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 consider how do we invest? You know, do we invest in jails and policing? Uh, and it, look, there's certainly a a need for some of that, mm. but do we grow that area or, or do we grow the you know the initiatives around you know, individual needs, community needs, you know, the culture around that, investing in parents, you know, because that's an incredibly difficult job. Um, you know, in the best in the best of times, it's an incredibly difficult job, let alone if you've got severe mental health problems yourself. So, um, I, th- I think some really uh, 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 you know pointed areas that 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 you've you know uh, highlighted there. Yes, I mean, I, I think, you know, the idea of violence as a public health problem has been around for a while, and I've certainly found it very um, a, a, a helpful. And I used to be a bit suspicious of it because I I, I was concerned that mental health professionals were, might be pulled in to medicalise uh, or psychologise uh, uh, what is sometimes is a, is a very real political issue, you know, issues about poverty, issues about drug use, issues about jobs, um, uh, issues about pu- cuts to public services. These are political issues. But now I think, you know, some years on, I, I think that actually um, it, it it makes sense to think of these things, that human violence is is 
is not a weird phenomenon of weird individuals, but is something that we all have a potential for in the right circumstances. Uh, and happily, very few of us will do. So when people are, do act violently, we should take it incredibly seriously. Um, and some people we may need to detain and contain and restrain, hopefully not too many, but there'll be some. Um, but, uh, but above all, we should try and treat the roots of violence in those individuals. And I feel very strongly we should not be jailing anyone who has committed a nonviolent offence. We must find some other way um, of, of managing those people who break the rules. We cannot, I don't think we can afford to build more and more prisons um, for every single person who breaks the rules. I don't know how it is in Australia, but the incarceration rates in the US and in, and in the UK have, and even in places like Holland, you know, liberal Holland that hardly ever imprisons anybody, I mean, their incarceration rates have all been rising. And we have to, I think we have to start to be a bit more uh, savvy about this because I'm not sure we can afford uh, really to deal with people just by locking them up. Mm. Um, I, and it doesn't you know, make think, sense because yeah. that's the, you know, we're putting people back into an environment, you know, when we talk about environmental factors that increase violence, you know, no one expects that uh, a prison setting is a good place for, no. uh, for, 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 you know, uh, people to learn those skills. And I'm not suggesting that they're not given those opportunities, but it's not a good environment. Yeah. So we, you know, we know that community is a better environment and, and mm. the like. But uh, Gwen, can I uh, ask you a final question in terms of yeah, uh, uh, expanding on this for our listeners? Where can where can our listeners, people go to find out more about your work, about, you know, this, this, this area of, of, you know, violence the mechanisms you know whether it's on a global um uh, a stage or on you know research that you think is is uh you know very um sound like the meta-analyses that you spoke of where where can we go to find out more um, well, uh, the good news is that there's lots of, of really uh, good information um, out there. The WHO have um, a website has uh, lots of pages dedicated to, to violence, um, and they published a paper, uh, I think in 2005, talking about violence as a public health problem. I may have got that date wrong, but it's you know it's been a, this idea has been around for a, a while. Um, I also mentioned the work of Professor James Gilligan, uh, now sort of semi-retired, but he he worked for many years um, in a federal prison uh, on the east coast of the states, and he has been a presidential advisor on managing violence uh, in prisons, but also in schools and society. Um, and he he wrote an extremely interesting book called Why Some Politicians Are More Dangerous Than Others, um, which charts how homicide and suicide rates rise and fall according to the political cover of the gov color of the government. Um, and under right-wing governments, they tend to go up, and under left-leaning governments, they tend to go down. Um, and you find something interesting. There's similar um, uh, data in, in the in Europe, although it's uh, it's buffered because of so much of Europe has social welfare programs that the states don't have, and of course they don't have access to guns. So, 
so it's it's complicated um but um i and i think uh, there have been some very um i um just trying to think of the my mind's gone blank at the name of the author but um there have been some very interesting papers about uh social inequality as a form of structural violence um i also also recommend stephen pinker's book um the better angels of our nature uh while not a perfect book um it's I'm not sure I'm happy. I agree with him the way he deals with domestic violence. Um, but he charts very nicely some of the very interesting factors that might account for why violence rates have been falling, uh, certainly in Europe and even in America in the last 50 years. And I think they're similar in Australia too. So there's some very interesting data um, that forces us to think a little bit about why violence rates should be falling. That doesn't mean we shouldn't care about it. In fact, it should make us even more interested um, because there must be something going on that we need to, to, think, to think about. Um, and then I mentioned the Ogilvy meta-analysis um, on insecure attachment. Um, and there are some good books about disorganized attachment. Um, and in fact, the, there's, a, um, there's a very interesting a group of people headed up by a developmental psychologist, professor of psychology called Carlin Lyons-Ruth, L-Y-O-N-S uh, hyphen R-U-T-H, Lyons-Ruth. Uh, her group have been studying disorganized attachment and its impact on mother-child relationships. Now that might sound quite a world away from violence, but there's an increasing concern, I think, that the disorganized attachment looks like the kind of state of mind which is the kind of state of mind that might be associated uh, with violence. And her work has actually been used in a couple of very poignant but very rich studies done by Italian colleagues about filicide by women and about disorganized attachment. So really, it's, and then I go back to the, I mentioned the UNODC, um, their reports on violence are very helpful. Um, if you're nerdy like I am, there'll be national stats on, on crime and they're well worth reading. <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe it's really nerdy, but I do. I think the crime stats are really interesting. And most of the people who put the crime stats together are also very interesting and they often produce really good reports. I'd be amazed if you don't have similar data um, in, Cam in, in Canberra. Um, and and for a, a kind of narrativized story version of what we've been talking about, I published a book last year called The Devil You Know, which is really an invitation to people to come and have a look at the work of a therapist with violence perpetrators. Um, and these are stories based on people I've met, uh, written with my good friend Eileen Horn. This is a book which is a, a, a a set of case stories, an invitation to come and look and think about violence in a slightly different way. Um, it's not uh, a work of research, but it may be of, of it, it may be of interest to people who are, are interested in violence from a slightly different perspective. I'm sure it'll be a uh, a, a, a great book to read for our, for our listeners. And what I think is so refreshing and why I re respect you so much is what you've just described in the readings to take forward and to consider is so broad. There's so many 
factors at play, you know, whether we're talking about social policies, whether we're talking about, you know, attachment in childhood, whether it's, you know, political leanings of, of, of government, whether it's, you know, social inequalities, understanding crime stats. There's, there's so many variables and factors to, to, to consider and hence why this, this concept of it's a, this is a health problem, you know, not, not a easily um, you know, simplified problem that 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 um, you know, should be considered with with great nuance and, and consideration mm. and, and and thought about whether it's you know for policymakers or whether it's for mm. clinicians uh, for you know health workers um, you know for, for mums and dads and how we mm. set up our environments for our for our children um, so you know you know big. Big and immense and, and heartfelt thank you for shining such a, a beautiful light on this on this topic. I've certainly learned a lot and it's broadened my my viewpoint. I thought I, I had a little bit of, of an understanding in, in you know working as a psychologist, but I think what you've what you've described is, is really refreshing. Um, you know, where you know, this is only the start of a conversation and needs mm-hmm. to be, you know, thought yeah. through as you've given your your, your entire life to. Um, and, and if we think about it in that way, uh, you know, I think there's many more opportunities in how we can address you know, violence mm. and, and, and support, you know, individuals, families, communities, you know, countries, and even on a global, you know, status yeah. to learn from one another about how to do this better. Yeah. And come together and come together determined to try and and reduce it. I'm sure that if people can come together and take this seriously, looking at everything, not just write it off with those are bad people over there, let's forget about them. Um, I think uh, I think if we approach it with compassion and nuance, just as you said, Nesh, that's a lovely way of putting it, I think we can make a difference. Thank you, Gwen. And, and, and to the listeners, please pick up a copy of The Devil You Know. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it will be an incredible read and, and hopefully pursue some of those other further readings uh, as well. So, Thank you again, and um, you know, th- and also thank you for for uh, the work that you do. The world needs people, people like yourself, and and you know, assisting the rest of us about how how we can make uh, the, the the world a place that we all um, not only want to live in but understand better. Because I think the the more we understand, you know, the better we can meet these challenges. So you know, thank you again, Gwen. Thank you for inviting me, Nish. It's been, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, If you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.